I'm a sprinkler. I'm the, you know, in Salt Bay where you sprinkle the salt, right? I'm the guy <laughs> who sprinkles salt on the startups as and when you need me, right? That's me. Welcome to Happy Millionaire, a show about how to make profit with a positive impact and stay happy along the way. I've been waiting to ask you, so how has been this, the doctor's kitchen takeover of the NHS canteen? Oh, yeah. So for people that don't know, NHS is the National Health Service in the UK and Rupee Food is now there. Well, a few few hospitals, right? Yeah, but yeah a few hospitals. Yeah, how's it going? How's yeah, it's it going? good. So I'll, I'll give you the, the TLDR and the backstory of this, right? So when you go to an NHS hospital, it's usually like a Costa, there's an M&S if you're lucky, there is like uh, the hospital canteen that generally serves like jack of potatoes and chips because that's basically what people want to buy and stuff. And fish. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Fish and <laughs> chips on a Friday, everywhere. Up in other countries, always fish and chips. Even people working within the NHS, they don't fully understand that we don't operate within a purely public sector system. There are multiple services that are farmed out to private companies um, so Sodexo is, is one of them, ISS is another, Compass being one of the biggest ones. And then even within like NHS services, whether it's imaging, whether it's therapy services, whether it's uh, diabetes contracts, those are also bid on by private contracts. And those contracts could be anything between like four years and like 10 years. Like it's, it's pretty, wow. pretty gnarly. So Compass Group, they're, they're a company that do a lot of the catering services for NHS hospitals. And they approached me when I was doing a, I, I was doing a live demo at a public sector catering uh, gig. Uh, they, they have a conference yeah. for like, you know, MOD and all the rest of it. And they came up with this idea, well, look, we'd love to do like uh, something with you. We love your food. We love your ethos. Why don't we do like a trial? We do a doctor's kitchen pop up at some of our canteens. You take mm. over the menu. I uh, would do this for like a week at various sites, uh, and we'll just see how it goes. And so over the, la- the the last couple of months, we've been coming up with some KPIs. Like, okay, what does a great outcome look like at the end of a week long pop up at a hospital? Uh, is it sales? Is it customer service? Is it food waste? You know, all these different elements that okay would judge whether this is a commercially viable and b something that you know should happen and obviously if you, yeah. you post that on my uh, socials everyone's going to go mad for it they're going to be like this is amazing we definitely need this in hospitals we you know we, we want to see this everywhere but people are predictably irrational I'm, I'm using a term from um, Dan Ariel here in that they say they want something but in reality, what may happen, I don't know the results of this, but what may happen is that people just want jack of potatoes and chips. Mm. And, and that is essentially what the common denominator is across all these different sites. If people didn't want that, people wouldn't buy it. Um, that's one argument anyway. The other argument is like, well, we should really be doing what people should eat. We should be providing what people uh, ideally, you know, should have on their plates. Particularly in a hospital setting, we should be creating a culture of healthy eating. So that's sort of the the angle that I'm playing. But we've only done one week. So where's the trial? The the trials are happening at five different sites, right? So we've got Surrey, we're at Adam Brooks in uh, Cambridge this week. We're going to be at Peterborough, Northwood Park, Barnet. There's, There's five different sites. 
one week at each site and we're going to see what happens. There isn't a commercial arrangement. So like there's no money changing hands. They're doing all the work behind sourcing ingredients, getting the chefs trained up, the printing of materials and all that kind of stuff. I've done all the work of formulating the recipes themselves, coming up with the, the concept. There's salad and there's hot. You know, I had to make sure that it hit certain criteria. It was relatively allergen friendly, all that kind of stuff. But the big sort of goal for me isn't for this to be like, an amazing sort of home run in terms of like um, commerciality. I just want to see this happen in hospitals because Mm. as Amit will be able to attest to, we need to change the culture around healthy eating and actually, you know, appreciate nutritional medicine within hospitals. That's where it should start. And the other dirty secret that not a lot of people realize is that medics and people working within medicine themselves are generally more unhealthy or have, they have more risk of conditions, particularly lifestyle-related illnesses, than the general population. And that includes crazy, right? obesity, depression, Alzheimer's, dementia, cardiovascular problems, you know, all these different issues. So, you know, we really should be investing in the health of our medical practitioners in the same way, you know, companies like Google, Facebook, you know, big sort of forward-thinking mm. companies invest in the ease and the sort of practicality of eating well for their employees. They're catering for seven to 8,000 people. They may have 700 to 800 covers during lunch. And within that, there's a coffee bar, there's like grab-and-go sandwiches, there's the hot and the cold bar that I was t- taking over. Do you know your bestseller? Like, do you know like what sold the most in your products then? Uh, no, not yet. We don't have the results just yet. But I, f- just from being there on the day, I think it'll probably be the, the cacciatore that I made, the chicken cacciatore, or the, the Malaysian curry was awesome. Like I, I got to taste yeah. everything before it went out and it's really good. Like the chefs have done such a good job. Is it vegetarian the best thing, or what's that one? That's vegetarian. Yeah, that's vegetarian. Okay. Um, the best compliment I got from people there was actually from one of the catering staff. He, was, he came up to me and was like, I'm really proud to serve this food. He oh, did, man, he, yeah, like, it melted in my heart. It was literally like, I'm proud to be serving this food. Like, I, I'm enjoying the experience and I, you know, this is the food that we should be serving. You know, I'm passionate about it, as you can tell. I want to see this in every single hospital up and down the country. Compass are great partners for that. There's nothing that will secure in my heart that this is going to go up and down the country for the next few years. There isn't that yet, but there is a lot mm. of excitement. And I think there'd be a great partner uh, to make that happen. So yeah, we'll see, man. We'll see. Well, when they send the contract, you call up Uncle Jay. And then, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go through it together, right? I might actually go to the NHS canteen to eat your food, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be one of those guys. I'll be one of those guys. If I do, I'll take loads of Instagram posts and videos too, don't worry. I wanted to put put something to you, actually. Uh, so I, this is what yeah, I was calling. You know, I tried calling you on Friday. I was having like some shower thoughts whilst I was walking my dog. You know, we're talking about leaning into boredom. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to like, when I take my dog out, not put my AirPods in. So I'm, I'm usually like constantly consuming information. Um, I'm a bit like Amit in that, our producer Amit, in that uh, he's always trying to uh, optimize uh, as much information as he's getting, like putting things on two speed, AirPods wherever he goes. Like sometimes you need to have a bit of break from that, right? And so when I walk my dog, perfect sort of example of uh, having a break from it. And what you realize is that you have these like shower thoughts. So thoughts when you're bored and actually your brain sort of just, you know, conjures up ideas and that's creative side. And so I was thinking, we're always struggling to like find a studio 
for the podcast, right? We're always like, okay, where do we go? We need to make sure that everyone can get there. It's like, you know, relatively close to whatever underground line and it's at the right time of day and stuff. But now I kind of, I need a studio myself. So I need a kitchen that I can film in uh, regularly. I need um, to have a space for like uh, one or two of of the staff that need to drop in, almost like a co-working space. So I was thinking... So is this somewhere uh, when you go, let's go to Jay's apartment and just no, use no, that? No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. no I, I, I think we need to get our own studio and it, it could be anywhere. It could just be like... By the way, you've got this massive business with this like little petty pod and we're like now part of your... <laughs> is this the way you're pitching me? Because I'm the budget holder. You're like... No, no, right. I, 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 I've been thinking about... I know, I've been thinking about buying a studio myself anyway. And I was like, if you want in... Let's have that conversation okay. now. You don't necessarily need to buy it with me. I'm not like, don't, don't worry about buying it. You've got enough stuff going on and I want you to invest in my other company. But like what we could, what I could do is get a studio that's relatively central for all of us. And that's where we could do the pod. And that means we can just like drop in to do it whenever weekends. I, th- I think it's a good shout. Like it's so, I know some people who listen to podcasts, they don't realize actually finding a studio is so bloody hard. It's yeah. expensive. And there's not that many, weirdly. There's not that many. Man, look, right now in the markets, it's so hard to get any return. So if, <laughs> if it makes sense, mate, I think it's an investment deal. I'm investing in you technically because you're going to hold this. I think it's a great investment. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of people asking me, like obviously now I've built a few companies, I've, you know, I guess I'm a bit more on social media now. Like the question I always get is just like, what differentiates you? Like what is so special about you, right? I, I, it's just one of those constant repetitive questions. And it's quite a weird one to answer because I want to try to give some value and I can, you know, I want to try to give some real insights to what, like what magic have I got, right? Um, honestly, it's not that much. There's a few things, but there's one thing that's actually a bit unique. And I think if people have listened to some earlier episodes of the podcast, they may have heard the story about uh, my dad and he used to buy the rich list. And, you know, when I was like the ages of like seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, I'd have to sit with him in the house and go through this rich list. That was his like passion, right? I was like his business buddy and I would sit next to him and I'd go through this rich list. And I know that was like the first time, I think it was when I was 11, I recognized the pattern. Like everyone on the rich list was an entrepreneur. So that moment, that was the seed plant for me being an entrepreneur. So that was the first time that I recognized the pattern. And I was like, wow, this is quite powerful. The next time, which is, and you're going to laugh, is, um, do, you ever, do you ever get that magazine, Reader's Digest? Did you remember mm, it? Reader's Digest I, is like I remember a small it, little booklet. I've never, re- I don't think I've ever read yeah, it, yeah. but I do, I do know what you mean, yeah. Right, I read it a few times, but one time I read it, I actually learned something really fascinating. Um, it's actually about Will Smith. Now, I know like people are you know back and forth about him right now, and I don't really want to get into the whole... Oscar thing, right? But one thing he said in there was really interesting. Um, So I think it was in 1995, he basically said, he said it out there to the universe, he goes, I want to be the greatest actor of all time. Like that was what he wanted to do. He wanted to be the greatest actor. So what he did was he teamed up with one of his buddies who was like this analytics person. And they basically studied all the greatest films ever made up until that day. I think it was like 1994. And he studied every single film and he realized a pattern. Out of the top 10 films, right, from this, like, from that period from, you know, before 1994, 10 out of 10 of them were sci-fi movies, right? So that was pattern one. Pattern sci-fi two movies. was, yeah, sci-fi movies. Right? I wouldn't so have guessed that. I would have thought so it think of like aliens. Think of Jaws, like I think. So it's like, you know, it was like, it was essentially like sci-fi, right? Wow. Something a bit, yeah, different. Second, um, 
Nine out of ten had some form of creature in there. <laughs> so there's some form of creature. So think of me like Ghostbusters. I can't remember what the ten were, but like I know aliens is in there, right? Uh-huh. So the second, so nine out of ten had some form of creature, right? And then eight out of ten had some love story. So okay. that was. So those were the three things he recognized, right? So sci-fi, creatures, and love story. And then he basically just took that on him, took that upon him, took that information, and then bang, Men in Black came out. Bang, Independence Day came out. Like, I feel he chose the scripts that essentially hit those three buckets or was helping in influencing um, those three parts. But wow. essentially, as you guys know, Will Smith had probably the craziest run of all time yeah. in Hollywood. He, he, he outshined... Brad Pitt, Tom Hanks, like, you know, these were the legends, the icons of acting in that era. And he just, I mean, he just destroyed them. I'm mm-hmm. being honest, he was the highest paid actor. Um, yes, he had some misses like uh, Wild Wild West and uh, some other ones. But but if you look at the wins, the, the wins were huge, right? And that was, again, another moment where I was like, wow, that's a pattern. Like that, I re- So he basically worked out the pattern for his success. I, I, I remember I was blown away. I was literally blown away when I read that story. Funny, fast forward, a um, few other things in my life where, and this is my unique thing, is like, I've learned how important patterns are. And I've, and I've learned that at a young age, weirdly, as I said, as, you know, when I saw The Rich List, and then this Will Smith thing came in. And then if I look back, I went into finance and call it, you know, for what it was. But after I went to uni, I went into finance because I realized I want to optimize for money at that point. I did. And the, the most money was on the trading floor. It's, the, it's crazy when you're 21, you can make six figures, mm. right? That's mental, right? And no, mm. there's nowhere else. I there's not, there's hardly enough. That's, so I optimized for money, right? And then afterwards, I realized I want to optimize for my like future, right? And that's when I was an entrepreneurship life, I felt would be more fulfilling than me being in the corporate job. Because I realized I recognized the pattern. If you go to a corporate job, you're working your way to the top, um, but you're going to still be working like crazy hours. I don't care. I've seen the, you know, whether you're a, a, a director or a managing director, you're working crazy hours and you cap out as well how much money you can make. You don't, you know, so I realized this wasn't that exciting and you're working crazy, crazy hard on stuff that maybe you're not even passionate about. So I realized that I had to become an entrepreneur. I felt that life was better. So that was another pattern I recognized. I, people may not know this, but before Yieldify, which was my, I guess my first success, I was actually building an agency around digital marketing, so helping businesses to be smarter with their online marketing. Oh, right. Because um, I realized people had websites, but they didn't know how to actually make money off it. Mm. So I knew a lot about online marketing before I created Yieldify, which is essentially a technology that helps with um, online marketing and um, online conversions. And But what I realized, what the big switch I made was on agencies, I realized the valuations for agencies, how much they're worth, was basically at one or two X of their revenue. So let's say I have an agency, I make two million pounds, the business is worth two million pounds, maybe four, but most likely two. If I build a software, a technology, you multiply that by 10. Mm. So if I've made two million, that company's now worth 20 million. So that's the moment when then I pivoted, I went, like, okay, if I want to make more money or I want to build a bigger success, I'm going to build a software company, a technology company. I've realized throughout my whole life, I've just, I'm one of those weird people that if you give me information, I'm just going to look for the pattern and then I'm going to do it. And I've got loads more examples, but I want to start with those. And I don't know if you noticed it with me or like B is, are you like using patterns? I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are on this. I, I didn't know that stuff about Will Smith for sure, man. Like, uh, and that's pretty genius if you think about it. I, I love a Venn diagram, right? So I, I love like, you know, looking at different trends or different sort of categories and seeing where they overlap and seeing, you know, if that is an opportunity or something unique or whatever, whatever. So it's kind of like habit stacking. Like, I think we might have mentioned this in the pod before, but Ronaldo, for example, greatest footballer in the world. If you look at the key attributes, 
Uh, is he fast? Yeah, he's super fast, but he's not the fastest. Uh, does he train hard? Yeah, he trains pretty hard, but I wouldn't say he, you know, he's like training as hard as The Rock or whatever. He trains pretty hard. Uh, you know, is he skillful? Yeah, he's amazingly skillful, but is he the most skilled player? Well, probably not. Like, you know, there's people that can probably do a bunch of his sort of tricks or whatever better than him. But put all those attributes together, you've got the greatest player in the world, right? Mm. And so, you know, my sort of initial hunch when you said, what are the highest grossing films and the most popular films? I would have thought rom-coms because, you know, Harry Met mm. Sally and like, uh, I don't know, Sluts in Seattle. Night and, and all those. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've actually got a soft spot for uh, for rom-coms. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not oh, ashamed look at you, to admit Rufy. that. I love it. Mate, I love it. <laughs> I like I it got, as well. I like it as well. Uh, yeah, just going through the process of like seeing where certain elements map over. I mean, that that's pretty genius. Um, in terms of patterns with you, I don't know, man. I, I can't say I've ever analyzed you in that way before. I didn't realize that you used to have a marketing agency, actually. You know, it's funny. You know, um, I've got a lot of friends who are in, in a corporate job, right? And they always ask, you know, some of them ask me, hey, what's your advice? What should I do in a corporate job? Because I'm like, you know, again, like, it's a, it's, I think it's interesting. How do you get to the top? And one, one, that, one thing that's really interesting is I found out all the people that get to the top, so I do speak to a lot of those guys, and I said, like, what, how did you get there? They always say one thing, and it's quite interesting. They say they all took one big risk while they were there. One so sometimes risk. they go do a bit, yeah, they took like a big project, which essentially was one that maybe their own initiative and they saw it all the way through. Or, you know, if you're a trader, they, you know, there was a big opportunity and they just literally put all, you know, they went all in. If you're in finance, there's going to be this moment where something's like very important is happening and they took a risk. Like I found mm. out that all of these people did take a big, big risk. So, you know, you look at entrepreneurs and yes, you look at us and go, hey, you guys have taken a big risk. But I also found there's a similar thing with the guys in a corporate job. But again, that's another pattern. I mean, that's one pattern that I what, want to share with everyone because yeah, you what, for what, it. what was your big risk? My big risk was I left a corporate, yeah, I left a high paying job to go do a yeah. startup, right? That was a big risk. That, that, you know, if I was to fail, I moved back with my parents in my parents' house and for two years I made no money. And yeah, I had no idea it was going to work. You know, I think I even mentioned I was looking for jobs before Unify took off because I, I just knew it wasn't right. You know, I feel you have to always take big risks. But even in business, right? If you have set up a business right now, you are going to have to take some big, bold risks. Like I think one of the big challenges we have right now in all businesses, and this is a really interesting thread as well, is that I was catching up with one of the CEOs of the businesses that I actually found it, so I no longer run it. And I asked him, hey, what's the one big lesson that you've learned? And he goes, do you know what, Mike? All businesses, like 95% of businesses, they don't actually truly know how they differentiate from the other companies. Like there is no real differentiation. It's like a really fluffy one. It's mm. super fluffy. So if you look at some of the greatest companies, they, they are usually quite differentiated, right? It might be through a genuine change in culture, like think of the likes of Apple or like, you know, Tesla, or it could be like in finance, you've got like Goldman Sachs. They, their standards are just beyond crazy. Like their interview process, I interviewed with Goldman Sachs, is 20 interviews. 20 I got to interviews. interview number, I, I, got, I got to the 20th, inter, like, I think I got to number interview like 17 or 18, I got rejected. I was so <laughs> oh, upset. Man. But, uh, no, no, I was upset. No, it's not that I was like dying, like obviously at that time, you probably want to work for Goldman's, but you know, they put me through all that. But that is also their, one of their differentiators is, you know, they're known for their interview process. But is that strong of an of a differentiator? But I think you know their culture is just so different. They just want literally the the creme de la creme and aggressive high standards, like aggressive high standards. They cut ten percent of their employees every year, right? Like the bottom ten percent, like that's super aggressive. Yeah. But again, that can be a differentiator. But going back to this thread, like I just feel you know whoever's in a job right now or in a startup, wherever you are, 
I, I love asking that question. Like, what is like in your company you're at or whatever you're working on? Like, tell me exactly that true, true differentiation, which is like, honestly, you know, hand on heart, you can say, and you're not like BSing yourself. This is a truly differentiated. And it's so interesting. Like, I feel most people can't. Because um, mm. even the examples I said before, you can argue, you know, they're not fully differentiated, but I think it's just so hard now. And that, that again goes back to risk because you have to go all in on something which you may not be sure of and you have to just keep on doubling, triple, quadrupling down on this one area. Like, go back to the example of Apple. They they did quadruple down on their iPhone, right? Which at the time might have been a big, bold... It was a big, bold decision, right? I just feel, again, it goes back to taking risks and you know, does your management team or the exec team willing to double, quadruple down on something? And I know it's, it's very, very rare. Yeah. Because you're scared. You're scared. Mm. I think it also comes down to, I mean, maybe not a direct comparison with, with Apple, but like the way most entrepreneurs deal with risk is their frame of mind. So f- for me, when I think about the risks I take by not progressing through medicine to the same sort of pace and velocity as my peers, you know, every day I don't spend in clinic, every day I don't spend in the hospital. I'm losing sort of the finger on the pulse, so to speak. I'm, I'm losing that cl- clinical acumen, that, that experience that differentiates a good doctor from a phenomenal doctor, right? But the way I see it is that if I don't double down or focus my energy into an area that I truly believe is going to have a massive impact on as many people as possible, then you know the, the trade-off isn't worth it. it the, playing the safe route it just, mm. you know, it, it, for me, it doesn't become a risk thing. It's like, well, once you've bitten the forbidden apple and you see the state of play, there is no other option but to to, to go down this path. Mm. That's the way I, sort of, I, I frame it in my head anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sort of uh, less inclined to think about it these days anyway, more recently as a, as a risk, but more like a risk to my happiness if I don't play the game the way I want to uh, do it as well. Tell me more about patterns, man. I, I'm, I'm interested in the other things that you've more patterns. examined. You want more patterns. So yeah. I'm going to interrupt this for just one second. Me and Jay love seeing your reviews, but we wanted to go a step further and let you have the chance to ask us some questions on the pod right here. If you go to happymillionaire.club, there's a microphone in the bottom right corner. Click that. Tell us who you are and ask for anything you like. The best ones will be played on the show in a couple of months. Let's see what you've got. And a really important one for me is my, um, it's quite interesting because my, my future happiness. And I've realized when I see a lot of my friends who have started having kids now, I can see that, you know, if, you, if you're in a job um, and you're working really long hours and it's quite intense, um, you don't get much time with your family and your partner, right? And you know, one thing I'm always fascinated about is like relationships, right? How do you make sure you have the best relationship with your partner and with your kids? And the number one reason why like your future, your relationships sometimes don't work out with your partner is actually they didn't spend much time together while having kids. Mm. I'm actually, it's a, it's a huge time where it separates because the studies out there that in the first few years, Men don't actually have a big connection to the child. They don't. They don't have that innate, you know, child connection as much as women. So sometimes what happens is guys start feeling really insecure, and because they're like, "Hey, how comes the mothers have got such incredible connection with the child, and um, I don't?" And they start feeling really insecure, and they actually start separating from the two. And this is the moment when sometimes the woman has to bring the guy into the pack, or the guy is just self-aware. And it just made me realize that you have to have time to do this. Um, like, and I'm just thinking as well of like, as you're, 
as your child's evolving and growing. Like I really want to be there. Like I know I haven't got kids, but I'm just future thinking, right? As just preparation for the future. So I'm just trying to make sure that with my life, I'm not stuck. So you probably know this, but my, my calendar is pretty empty and stuff comes in as and when. I'm not, it's not that crazy pack. Sometimes it is if I've got something serious going on, like, you know, I'm selling a company or I'm raising money, but generally it's quite open. And so that is, again, so I've realized, you know, what the pattern is, is just the happiness for the future. I realize the happiest people I know, they are not working crazy hours. Um, they're just having a fulfilled life. And even goes back to that, you've, you know, I think we mentioned before on the story of the deathbed, what's the number one big, big regret everyone has before they die um, is that they work too hard. Mm. And I'm aware of that. I, I put myself in this position where I don't have to work that hard or I don't have to work crazy hours. I'm, I'm not, no company really needs me. Um, I'm just an, I'm a, I'm a sprinkler. I'm the, you know, in Salt Bay where you sprinkle the salt, right? I'm the guy <laughs> who sprinkles salt on the startups as and when you need me, right? That's me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so like, I, so that was another pattern I recognize. You like that one? There's a more, well, I've got more stories about that one, but yeah. You were always the pattern of oh, the happiness one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, from a yeah, selfish yeah, yeah. point of view, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, obviously being married now and all the rest of it. I don't think I can go back to working like, I think Naval talks about this in his like 2018 viral tweet or whatever, like work like a lion, not like a cow. A cow is mm. there like, you know, grazing all day long, like, you like know, that. just moving around. Whereas a lion will like sprint and, you know, get his kill and then spend the rest of the time chilling, you know, just like conserving energy, being lost with his thoughts and all the rest of it until he can do something big again. And yeah, I've, I've, I've just been thinking about that through the perspective of where I want to be when it comes to having, starting a family and all the rest of it. Um, and from selfish reasons, then yeah, absolutely. I don't think I could ever go back into full-time medicine. And the other thing, I, I, we must have talked about it on the other podcast, but the whole four-day work thing, I'm very, very bullish on. I, I believe it's almost like, particularly in the day and age where we have computers and soon to have robots that will do most of the tasks mm. uh, of, of daily living, like it, it should be inevitable that we get to a four-day work week. And people might have some thoughts on this, but like, you know, Andrew Yang bringing to the mainstream this idea of universal basic income, something that's been percolating for, for many decades. Amongst Who's that dude then? What's his background? Andrew Yang was one of the presidential candidates in, uh, I think it was 2016. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast. Okay. Uh, okay. He's a math guy. Uh, it, it, I think his slogan nice. was like, you know, I love math. I, I generally thought he was pretty refreshing. And the fact that he was even willing to go on a podcast like Joe Rogan's and actually have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with someone who's probably like right of center or very right of center. Mm. I thought it was great because he comes from a democratic background. But anyway, yeah, his idea, not his idea, but like his sort of like a message of giving everyone, a thou I think it was like a thousand or two thousand dollars every month as a way to increase revenue and increase creativity and increase sort of happiness levels, I thought was, was super interesting. And I think now, particularly in a post-pandemic world, this idea of uh, universal basic income is going to become pretty um, uh, mainstream. I actually had one of the mm. professors, on, a guy standing on my podcast talking about universal basic income. Um, he's done a whole bunch of like real world studies in like India and he, he points to a bunch of studies from the Nordic countries as well. But I, I think it comes down to culture. It's such a huge shift, though. It's yeah, like it's huge. Going yeah, from, yeah. It's, it's gigantic shift. Yeah, like yeah going massive. From, 
like receiving zero will technically receive maybe some benefits, but to that well, we, we live in a country that actually has a lot of benefits, but they're not realized monetarily. They're, they're mm. realized in terms of our services. So the fact that, you know, if you break your arm, you walk into any NHS hospital in the country and you'll be sorted out near immediately because it's likely going to be an emergency or you might have to wait a few hours <laughs> yeah. or whatever, yeah, but you'll definitely get some yeah, pain yeah. relief. Yeah, yeah, you'll get, you get some pain relief in the meantime. And if you needed a surgery to repair your ligament or whatever permanent damage you might have ascertained, you get that. Whereas in America, mate, you're effed. Like, <laughs> you, yeah, you, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a whole... Yeah, it's crazy. And, but that culture is embedded in American citizens. They think that's normal. Whereas we think that's completely foreign. So this whole idea yeah, yeah. of universal basic income is very foreign to us. But then again, we're coming from a, a, a right-leaning society, whereas in the Nordic countries where you pay a huge amount in taxes, but you get the benefit of like an amazing educational system, an amazing uh, national uh, health service and all the rest of it, it's like, it's like the norm. So I don't know. I, I, think it, I think it can be changed. And I think it's key to happiness. I'm just intrigued to see what happens. There's a lot of economics behind it to show that it will increase happiness. So I'm intrigued. And I do think that this era, this decade, um, we'll see a lot more entrepreneurs because they start recognizing this pattern that I've recognized and said, hey, look, I want to fulfill. Like, Because you can have a lifestyle business, right? And that's enough. Or I believe we're going to get more consultants or people maybe leaving their job and setting up their own like agency or their own consultancy. So then they can just work when they want. Because, you know, when you look at the day rates of things you can get, it's it's sometimes a lot more than your salary. Well, my dad was a farm boy. He comes here, he barely speaks English. He starts his company, he has to attract customers. He's got to deal with suppliers. He's got to obviously deal with the, you know, undertone of racism with, with anyone like uh, living in, and working in London. Uh, you know, he wears a turban. He's got to like figure out like a new system, a new banking system. You can't do things like how you do in India, let alone in the pin, in the village. So like, it's so, I, I couldn't do that. Like imagine me, like yeah. me go to, I can't even imagine going to somewhere like Spain and setting up a shop. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, do, I don't speak, I speak a we little bit We should do that. We should do that. Have a millionaire go to, because it gives us an excuse to go on holiday, right? We'll go to, to like, somewhere like Amsterdam and South. Yeah, maybe not yeah, yeah, Marbella because yeah. they were speaking English there. Mykonos, go make, yeah, let's go to Mykonos. Mykonos. We've got, we got, we got to make a thousand pounds in one day. That'd be, that'd be so fun. <laughs> Or the producer, yeah, like, yeah, it's, six, it's just, six, so it's great. Just, it's so much easier these days. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I agree. I think the sentiment that people are going to be a lot more entrepreneurial is, uh, is definitely there. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's wrap up. Should bring our buddy Amit for two minutes. Let's go for it, buddy. Okay, so the ones that I really liked was about pattern finding. And um, I, I was thinking how people go wrong on this. So like they might set goals. So lots of people maybe have aspirations to be an entrepreneur or, or, to, or to do something else, but they don't have a strategy for it. So it's almost like setting goals is you're, you're finding out what you want, but then you also need to know what works in the real world. So you need to see the patterns and develop a strategy for actually bringing that vision into fruition. Yeah, 100%. You need to know the vision and then you work backwards what the future looks like and then you take action, um, essentially. So yeah. Yeah, because I, I was even thinking with so, some people, they only do the second part, which is they see what works in the world. Uh, and may, Will Smith's probably, like, I, I think he probably does both, but some comedians, they only look at what works and then they lose authenticity. But then if you, if you have the 
authentic part as well, then it seems to work well. Uh, in terms of the one big risk, uh, so sometimes I think when you say risk, people uh, miss the thing which enables the risk, which is insight. So you can't just take a risk. You actually need to see like a, a hidden truth. So a good example would actually be Rupi, who saw uh, he had an insight into food as medicine and he paired that with a risk. If you just did like a a risk without insight, that's not really going to work. But when you have the risk with the insight, that could potentially work. And then there was also this element of doubling down on who you are, because when you're authentic and you keep going with it, it, it doesn't really feel like a risk because you're sort of going with the current of yourself, with nature, and it becomes easier than, say, if you're in a job that, that you don't like. And then in terms of the NHS canteen, um, what the thing I found really interesting was uh, something you, Rupi, mentioned about like contracts and money not changing hands, and there's this perception uh, that the payment is exposure. Uh, and it just got me thinking that... Like if you're in a the finance type world or in business, you, you can easily just say, look, my goal is to make money and no one will judge you for it. But if you're someone who's in the business of trying to make a positive impact, there's all these pulls on you to be like, oh, you should be doing it for free or you should be doing mm. it for the greater good. And and people that really suffer with that, I think, are like doctors working in the NHS. And there's almost like a cultural martyrdom sometimes that you... Because you want to do good, you shouldn't make any profit. And this is actually like, if you look into it, a problem that charities face, because a lot of charities, they start off with uh, good intentions, but they don't really have like a sustainable business model. And then they mm. end up falling prey to lobbying interests who fund them and then they start pursuing goals they no longer believe in. Yeah, there's a really good TED talk on that, actually, from memory about how charities need to operate like profit uh, maximizing businesses and actually you know get CEOs that are like top tier uh, think mm. about like their product uh, as if they were in the market uh, and they weren't you know operating with grants or whatever because that actually ultimately makes it a lot more sustainable do you think you've like got around that issue now in terms of I have for sure uh, yeah. absolutely okay. because I think once you get around the idea of of putting a value on things like your time putting a value on your your service or your good, uh, and and you surround yourself with people who are doing great stuff, other entrepreneurs, and you, you're 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 throwing yourself into that mix. It becomes a lot easier to see actually what your your true worth is, and I think that's why the the tyranny of like the nine to five, as it's called in some circles, mm. um, becomes the bigger risk to mm. to someone like me than you know. Do, doing it other way, and the the irony is, I probably work harder. I probably don't work anything like a lion right now, but I feel like mm. I'm a lion. Mm. But yeah, I've got, got a long way to go. First step, first step, yeah. Before you go, I've made something for you. It's an ebook on five crucial lessons from creating startups worth $500 million. And it's just for the listeners of this podcast. Download it for free on our website, happymillionaire.club. The links are in the show notes.